Hello and welcome to The Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist and I'm the online editor at The Strad. This episode is brought to you in association with Meadows School of Arts at Southern Methodist University. I'm speaking to Professor of Practice in Violin and The Strad's November issue cover star, Chad Hoops. Chad was winner of the Menuhin Competition Junior Division in 2008 at the age of 13 and he's also a recipient of an Avery Fisher Career Grant. How does Chad find different ways to teach the violin? Something that comes very easy to him. We spoke about teaching students from other disciplines, finding the balance between having technical proficiency and an emotional message in your music making, as well as the diversity of perspectives in a broad liberal arts environment. Here it is. Chad, welcome to the Strad podcast. You are our November 2021 cover star. It's amazing to meet you. Um, so we're here today to talk a little bit about your teaching role as Professor of Practice for Violin at Southern Methodist University Meadows School of the Arts. And what I'm quite interested about is how you teach students who don't necessarily major in violin or music. So can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to teach students from other disciplines? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting Actually, because I, um, in the past, before I took on this role um, as professor at SMU, taught many master classes, you know, when I was traveling or touring or playing concerts. Um, and most of the time, those kids had a heavy focus on music um, and on their instrument. And so many of them were very talented and things came very natural for them. That also applies to the students at SMU. But as you mentioned, it's a much broader sort of pool of students um, that I'm working with. Uh, and some, as you mentioned, have other focuses and are majoring um, perhaps in other um, areas. Um, I have one student, uh, she's a fantastic student and such a sweet sweetheart. Um, she's double majoring in Bachelor of Arts in Music and also a Bachelor of Science in Biology. Um, and she's pre-med and um, an incredibly bright, bright student. Um, she's also minoring in Chinese. So she's um, I think working and studying all of the time. Yeah, she's got a lot going on, it seems. <laughs> she's got a lot going on and she somehow manages to find time to practice and kind of keep her interest in music. And she's also playing in the orchestra at school um, and I think doing um, some chamber music even. So she's she's got her plate full, but she was, I actually, we had a lesson this morning on Zoom um, and I asked her, I was like, can you tell me a little bit about your experience you know, being a double major. And she said that it's, of course, a lot of work and a lot of time that she's spending at school, but she says it's really rewarding. Um, And when she's at the music school, it's like having a break from the science component. And she likes being able to make music and spend time with the other students. She finds it really fun and refreshing. Mm. Uh, She likes having that sort of variety. Um, And one interest sort of propels the other and, and feeds off of, you know, kind of each other, this sort of inspiration. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, actually, because I imagine if you're sort of dipping your toes into all these different disciplines and they're all going to inform each other and inform your music making. So do you find it helpful knowing these backgrounds of what your students are up to? And does that help you tailor your teaching methods to them? 
It absolutely does. I mean, every student is different. Every lesson is different. And, you know, you kind of have to teach according to the student. I mean, there are many different methods of teaching. And, you know, of course, I had some teachers and I know of some teachers who teach every student in a very similar manner. For me, and I know with, you know, some of my favorite teachers, it was a very individualized experience. And I want to provide that to my students. So, of course, it's it's a bit different. And she was telling me that she was in a music, she was writing a music history paper and she wrote about Mahler and Freud, you know, and this sort of like their, their relationship. And so that was kind of this marriage between science and music. And um, so she finds those connections, but it's interesting because she's so technically proficient and so accurate and um, her rhythm is spot on. And she's just, you know, has a very strong understanding of the music. And I think there's a more emotional side that I try to to get from her in terms of creating phrases um, and kind of finding musical lines and reaching a little bit deeper um, into herself and pulling something out so that it's unique to her, right? So it's not um, exactly what the page says and what the notes say, uh, but her take on that and her interpretation, her emotional sort of perspective of mm-hmm. the music. How do you teach that, you know, because if you're teaching someone who comes from a very academic side of things, doing what's on the paper, uh, doing something which is fairly prescribed, you know, what advice do you give to these students who maybe need to inject the sort of more emotional aspects into their playing? That's tough, actually. It's, it, it's not something you can teach. Um, at least I haven't figured out the trick for it. So if anybody knows a trick for that, tell me because that would be a winner. I mean, for me, I tell them to listen to record a lot of different recordings so that they have uh, internalized the music, right? So that they have it in their mind. And then I tell them to sing it, right? In a lesson, I'll say, how would you sing that, right? Because when we vocalize something, I think there's naturally more emotions involved, especially if you are an animated person. You have a natural sort of way of articulating things or expressing things that I think is, comes across really exactly. naturally when you're, when you're singing something. Exactly. So there's like a, a, a natural sort of pulse and, and, and rhythm almost and line. So I tell them to sing. In a deeper level, we have to sort of take life experiences that we have and channel them into our music. But at the same time, it's hard because you need the heart, but you also need the brain, right? You need to find a balance between having a cool brain and really having that kind of laser focus and sort of in the moment um, awareness, but also to have the passion and the heart. Um, but one can't really outbalance the other. So it's, I think it's tough finding that balance. And I think back to when I was a young student, my very first teacher, I was so excited and I was a talented kid and was going so fast, right? Everything was so fast. I just wanted to learn as much music as I could and just move as quickly as, you know, as she would allow. And she was always slowing me down and saying, we really need to internalize this. Just slow down and finding that balance of you love this, but also you have to you have to understand what you're doing uh, and play with your with your heart and play with feeling and play with the love that you have for music but also keep kind of a coolness about the way you know you're approaching it so it's not so emotional so there's always a balance i definitely am constantly learning things it's hard to reflect and, and pinpoint exact things that i'm learning but playing 
comes easy for me. And I feel privileged in saying that it's a blessing, but it's also a curse. And in terms of teaching, you know, to figure out how to tell somebody how to do something, I kind of have to take a few steps backwards and sort of unlearn things and, and f slow down and figure out how to tell them, you know, how to shift. There's a whole gamut of things. Yeah, I can imagine because if something does come naturally to you, then you sort of have to break things down to a base level that you perhaps hadn't thought of, you know, so much. One sort of parallel that comes to mind for me is how this might not necessarily be true in all English-speaking countries in the world, but I would say that a lot of English speakers don't have a hugely fantastic knowledge of English grammar, you know, because there are a lot of exceptions to the so-called rules. You know, we have things like I before E, except after C, but then we ignore that half the time. And then if you're talking to someone who's not a native English speaker and they ask you these questions, you sort of have to really think about your language in a different way. But it's easy for you because, you know, it's your mother tongue, perhaps. And so it's, it's kind of that same thing, isn't it? Actually, that's an amazing sort of comparison. I, I love that. Um, and I'm going to steal that from you, actually, because I think it's, it's spot on. That's exactly right. All rights we, reserved, Davina Shum. Okay, amazing. Um, I'll give you credit. Uh, but I think you're spot on with that. I think it's, it's almost like when I was studying in Germany, um, trying to learn German and trying to speak German with people. I was of course, very green and spoke very little German. And they would always respond in English because they wanted to practice how to speak American English, right? Because the English they learned is a bit different than the way that, you know, us Americans are speaking English. Maybe they think it's cooler or something. I don't know. But it's that sort of concept. Yeah. But absolutely. I guess that we can transition a little bit um, into one of the reasons why I think Meadows is such a fantastic place because these students are getting a really broad liberal arts education in conjunction with the serious music study. Um, and not a lot of places actually offer this sort of intense and broad sort of liberal arts background um, in addition to the music studies. And, yeah. you know, I always talk about being a 21st century musician and kind of all of the things that make up, you know, a 21st century musician and, and having sort of this broad background and, and being influenced and around lots of different kinds of people and people of different backgrounds and other students with, you know, different interests. Uh, I think it opens students' eyes a bit, right? You're not in a bubble um, when you are in a theory class with a pre-med student. The rhythm of the classroom and of the student body is so diverse and, and so varied. Um, and that creates a very interesting, exhilarating um, and in kind of an engaging environment. Yeah, everyone has got a different perspective to bring to the table. And, you know, I think that can really, really help the sort of learning dynamic, especially if perhaps you're struggling in one area there might be someone else at the table that can explain it to you in a way that you hadn't thought of. And then, you know, perhaps it clicks in that way. But I think it goes back to what you were saying before. It's all about finding the balance, isn't it? But recognizing what your strengths are and where there is room to grow and then making sure that you can sort of go forth from there. Yeah, absolutely. I have another student and she has students of her own. She has a quite a large class of, of children that she teaches um, actually through high school, I think. I have that in the back of my mind. Like if I'm gonna tell her something, 
she's going to tell her students that same thing, right? So there's this sort of passing down. It's just like me. I teach in a way that my teachers taught me, right? And so there's a responsibility there, but it's also cool because we see this kind of lineage. How does it feel to be a grand teacher? <laughs> I actually, when you say it, I haven't processed, processed it like that quite yet. So I'll have to think about You're that. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thank you. But, you know, so I teach her in a way of, she's going to tell her students this. So I, how, how can I convey something to her so that it's clear for her? She understands so she can pass that along. It's my responsibility also to teach my students how to teach themselves, right? Yes. Because we have a limited time frame and a limited window of sure, of undergraduate degrees, four years, or a master's is two years, or if it's a performance diploma, a couple of years. Sure, that's a long time, but also I want to give my students tools for beyond their studies, right? Into their creating their own professional careers and finding their own sort of paths. Um, and so that's has also forced me to slow down a little bit in the way I'm teaching and, and thinking about how we can practice efficiently, you know, also with like, for example, the student who's double majoring, she has very little time to practice. And also even the students that are majoring, you know, there's a lot of coursework and a lot of the students at school are playing gigs already and have formed their own chamber music ensembles. And, and one of my other students has formed even a, an orchestra, basically a local orchestra. Um, and she, she runs that. So th that takes a lot of time. So it's like, how can we have maximum, you know, impact in the practice room with kind of the minimal time? Minimal effort. Yeah. I think that's incredibly valuable. Just learning about basic time management, really. I think it's that classic thing that if you've, say, got all day that you're going to dedicate in the practice room, 10 hours, unless you break that down constructively, you're probably not going to get much done. So, you know, I think for these students that you're teaching, if they've got these limited windows of time in which to achieve these little mini goals that they set themselves, that's going to be far more effective than, you know, swathes of time doing ineffective practice. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I totally agree. And actually that's kind of how my brain works. I function best with short bursts of kind of energy and focus. Sometimes, you know, it, it changes depending on the project, but I tell my students, if you can just focus on one technical aspect, if you want to do one etude or just a line of an etude and really master it and kind of find the ease and comfort technically, or if you want to just take one phrase and if you discover something musically and have some sort of inclination or inspiration, then it's a successful day in the practice room. Exactly. And chances are it will inform something else further down the line. Correct. And the other thing about lessons is I'm teaching in a way where sometimes things are specific to a certain note or a certain phrase or a certain measure or a certain you know composer or a certain genre whatever but also in a broad way right if i say something in terms of shifting or in terms of you know the way we kind of use fingerings to efficiently sort of creep around the violin to had to have clean and efficient playing that applies to everything right to everything that you are studying and and, and learning so it's interesting. Uh, it's so much fun to teach. I mean, the other thing which we do at Meadows, which I really am excited to share and to, to kind of 
to be doing now is a lot of what we do is side by side. So if there's a chamber ensemble, usually there is a faculty member sitting in the chamber ensemble playing with the students, mm-hmm. not necessarily teaching or coaching, kind of coaching and teaching, but also just working together and creating something yeah. together. That's how I learned. I think that's highly valuable. So I'm a cellist, but like I remember some of the most valuable lessons that I learned in orchestra, you know, how to play in an orchestra was just doing it and just observing the people in front of me or playing side by side with people. They weren't necessarily giving me a lecture on specifics, but you just notice things as long as you allow yourself to open up to that. Exactly. I mean, just visually seeing somebody do something and hearing it and, and putting those two things together um, and then doing it with them. You know, if, if somebody's going to phrase something a certain way or shape something a certain way, you have the inclination to fo- to follow that and, and to do similarly, you know, or lead a certain way or cue a certain way. There are a lot of these little details that, that students can learn just by experience, experiencing it with um, somebody yeah. who has that sort of experience to share. <laughs> and that's you, the grand teacher. <laughs> well, I'm, I can hardly call myself a grand teacher. I'm at the very beginning and I'm still learning how to, how to do this. I think I'll always continue to try to learn um, how to teach. Of course. You kind of never arrive. I mean, I guess there are some people, I, my teachers, I'm like, of course they, they arrived. They were the, you know, the best. But I want to keep the perspective of continuing to learn and, and get better because I am at the beginning of this path. But I have to kind of take a step back and reach to my roots of kind of where I came from and the sort of traditions that I come from as a violinist and rely on those in my teaching. And I think that's a good foundation that I am coming from, you know. Well, Chad, thanks so much for sharing your views on teaching at Meadows. Well, thank you for taking the time and I'm happy to share with you and this is fun. That was Chad Hoops, Professor of Practice in Violin at Meadows School of Arts at Southern Methodist University. Right now, you're listening to a little bit of his recording of the John Adams Violin Concerto. And if you want to find out more about Chad, check out our November 2021 issue. And don't forget to head to our website, thestrad.com, to check out the latest news and articles on all things to do with string playing. And if you like what you see and hear... Register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. Remember, we've got 50% off an online subscription for students, so check the show notes for the link. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, why not give us a review or a rating? Thanks for listening and tune in again soon for another episode. Bye.